Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, where we are diving right into part two of our interview with Mike and Alicia Hernan of the Messy Family Project. If you missed part one, be sure to check out episode 63. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and this is a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... What is my life for? You know, like, is my life for my career? Is my life for getting ahead? Or is my life for family? Every man is called to be a father and every woman is called to be a mother. And that might be spiritual or that might be natural. It's in our psyche to do that. So finding ways that we can live that out, even before we're married, thinking of ourselves that way, that we have a gift and a power that this world needs. And have you found that for those people, and you know, this may may very well include myself one day, uh, for those people who do get that order reversed, and their mission informs their identity, that it can be hard to undo that when they're, that's impacting their relationships? What I think that, again, I, I look at um, parenting and, and marriage too. I, I, it's hard to separate the two. I see that as the seminary for, for lay people uh, in the sense that this is where we form. So, so everybody comes at it from different perspectives. Some of us will come from, you know, we, we've had divorced parents in the past. Some of us may have different examples in our, our what marriage looks like or have had, um, you know, maybe unchaste relationships before coming. We all come into it with different um, biases or experiences or, or what have you. Um, and so coming into it when you have your mission, maybe your, your, your career ahead of who you are in your identity or, or what have you, marriage will help rearrange that. And really, to be honest with you, there's very few things like giving yourself to a spouse. But then when the kids come along, you have an urgency right in front of you. You right. have a demand right in front of you that is requiring of you things that you've never and probably would never put on your own self. And those call you out of yourself. And that's the beauty of, you know, Archbishop Chaput talks about how um, just, just that, that this is the, the family is where we learn to be human. Uh, the family is, is where we develop our, our human formation in a powerful way, uh, where to love, to give, uh, and to receive. And the kids call it out of us. Our spouses do, mm-hmm. but the kids, there's nothing as urgent as a child's need for, mm-hmm. for things that call you out and correct your, basically your maybe misaligning uh, as you come into marriage and family. Yeah. And I think as, as people look at their careers even, and they look at, you know, what am I, what is God calling me to, to do? You know, how is he calling me to participate in his plan in this world? If you are called to be a biological parent, you know, a father or a mother to someone you have to see your career with the lens of your first, a son or daughter of God, second, you're a parent, and then your career is after that. And that whatever you are chosen, whatever you are doing within the world, whatever work you are doing within the world, you are allowing that to help you. You are accomplishing God's work in the world for the good of your family. And have you found that parents you work with feel guilty about prioritizing kids over their spouse, or maybe the other way around, maybe they feel bad about prioritizing the spouse over the kids. Uh, absolutely. And I, I think this is the the key elements. One of our, our, our kind of maxims that if you want to be a great parent, you need to be an amazing spouse. Yes. And, and there is, you know, in the order of things, you're a son or daughter, husband, wife, 
mom or dad. You became a husband and wife. And from that union came forth the kids. That's God's order, order but it's also the greatest surety for your kids. Uh, but there are many people who really see that as a challenge for them, right? That, that it's, it, it's the kids, again, I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but the kids have this urgency. They're, they're, they're ready. Their needs are real, present, and they're right in your face. And sometimes it's really hard to, to look at their needs and say, wait, this relationship between my spouse and I needs to come before it. But it, it always did. But it's so much easier to say to an adult, oh, they can deal with it. Oh, they're, they're going to, they know that I need to go take care of the kids right now. Uh, but that's really, we, we need to get that back on track for the good of the kids, let alone for the good of our marriage. Yeah. We actually, we did an interview with a, a great priest, Father Jay Donahue, who does work with marriages. And he comes from a family of nine, I think. Yeah. And then his parents came from a family of, his mom or dad 14. came from a family of 13, 14 kids. Big, big families, lots of great examples like that he grew up with of Catholic, of Catholic families. And when we asked him, what do you remember about like, what was, and all, they're all faithful Catholics, you know, for the most part. And so in asking him, how, what did your parents do to have these dynamic children? What did they do? And you know what struck me is that he didn't say, oh, they had this really great discipline plan or, oh, they had this really great system within our home. You know what he said? He said, my father was so in love with my mother, he brought her flowers every every week. You know, every week for almost their entire and marriage, and and his grandparents. And he talked about the love between spouses. And I thought that is, I think it's very important that we remember that. Is that I know that the kids they do they take up so much time and energy, but if you, <laughs> there's this one saying, parenting is actually easy, staying married is hard. <laughs> staying married is hard because I think that there's so much instinct that can go into parenting. Now, modern psychology has made it more confusing for parents. And a lot of that, you know, I think that parents can just probably ignore and still do a good job. <laughs> but be, staying married and really working on this relationship, not only can that in some ways be more challenging um, and more formative for you, it's also the bedrock for your family. That's right. So if you are at one with each other, if you are, if kind of like this is good, if you're working as a team, if you're in lockstep with each other, then it's so much more easy to engage the children in any behavior problems or in insecurities that they have when you both kind of feel filled up, you know, right. with love and affirmed in who you are. And then you feel like you can engage with your children from a much better place. So I think that that is also, it, it's so important that we get the marriage part right, that that's really essential. That's really helpful. And it helps to kind of resolve that disjunction or that seeming conflict, because when you are in a family, whether that be biological or by adoption, that bond of love is a multi-way street where if you're loving your spouse, you are still loving your kids who resulted from the union with that spouse. And one thing that we are starting to see a little bit more is a rise in popularity of households that are polyamorous or in some sort of con consensual non-monogamous relationship. They're starting to gain legal recognition in a couple of different uh, municipal areas, uh, as well like as on par with 
uh, marriage. And I think what you're talking about helps to bring out one of the underlying and maybe unspoken of risks of that kind of a relationship of a non-monogamous relationship, because if you're in a household with three adults and two of the kids are the result of the union of two of the adults and two of the kids are the result of the union of the other adults and one of the previous ones, it gets very confusing for the kids to say nothing of the adults. And so I could see that conflict being a risk there, which isn't the way you're articulating it, doesn't seem to be really a danger when you're talking about marriage and family as such. Yeah, exactly. And and it just, all I can think about in those situations are the children, you know, and the, the Holy Father's talked about the children have a right to yeah. a mother and a father and a mother and a father who are in love with each other and who are present to each other and present to their children. And this is why our Lord has given us these guardrails, these examples, not because he doesn't want us to be loved or to know love, but because he wants us to be careful of this precious gift that we have of our sexuality for the good of children. It's for the good children do. That's right. It's funny you started talking about the need for the spouses to prioritize each other and you ended up talking about how important it is for the sake of the children. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, that, that shows exactly the importance of prioritizing the spouse right. because it does end up coming back around because of that literally organic relationship. That's because right. you know what, if you think about it too, how many people are walking around wounded because their parents we're fighting all the time growing up. Right. And I just think of that as a, as a child of a divorced family, right. You know, the, the, the counseling, the healing, uh, the issues that I have gone through to yeah. work through. And it's like, and this was in a mother and a father who got married thinking they were in love and making this all work, you know, but then you throw in all these other legal unions that are being thrown around today. The, the carnage will be substantial on yeah. the children involved and then the society as a whole. I and mean, we believe that family is the basis of all of society and the marriage between one man and one woman is the foundation of the family. So when we start undermining that, it's not, uh, you know, th- this really harms the children, harms our future. But I also believe the opposite is true, is that when couples marriages come together and say, yes, this, we are going to double down on the design. We're going to make this work. We're going to make this work. We're going to say, you know what, we're going to prioritize our marriage above all the other things. We know this is the best parenting model. When we get our family aligned, we're taking spiritual leadership in the Mm -hmm. home where we're building a family culture. We believe not only that family will be transformed, it will have a transforming impact on the world. So I think that although I spent about 10 years in politics, I believe the best antidote to some of the things going on is people doubling down on their marriage, getting in charge of their own household in a powerful way. Um, and really, really transforming through the small things. God uses this divine economy where it's the small things that sometimes have the biggest impact in our world. And marriages and families are the pathway forward to transform society. Yeah, politics are not gonna is not gonna save us. <laughs> it's not gonna oh, happen darn. yet. <laughs> It's the family. It's all about the family. We were thinking of changing the name of the podcast to Made for Politics, but I guess we'll keep it as Made for Politics. <laughs> Good job. Good job. 
No, that's a good point about divorce. I'm also a child of divorce. And, you know, my, my parents are pretty amicably divorced, but I, I realized later in life that no matter how well your parents get along, that divorce introduces a division in your own identity because the basic fact of your existence that caused you to come into existence in the first place uh, has been repudiated by the two people who were essential to that happening. Yeah, that's yeah, so true. And and really, when you get right down to it, it's like, I don't think I fully appreciated when it happened as a preteen and early teenager. But the the marks of the, the witness of two people splitting up, I didn't have through my teenage years, a mother and a father. I mean, it's hard enough parenting with yeah, the two exactly, of us together. Exactly. You know, but it's like the formation that, that, that we missed out on as as children of a divorced family, the culture that wasn't there. That was meant for us to thrive and not just survive. Uh, so there's so much there that, that we could go into for another hour or two. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. it's, but, it's, but it's important to recognize that. That's another great point. And we have actually done an episode on divorce hosted by my predecessor, Sarah Perla, back in episode 23. And also in episode 26, she did another episode on big families. So if you are interested in uh, what we and the Herndons have been talking about uh, today, maybe go check out episode 23 and 26. And uh, where on the internet can people find you? So we are at MessyFamilyProject.org, MessyFamilyProject.org. There's podcasts. We have uh, resources like guides for discipline for your kids or dealing with technology and screens. And we have a little mini uh, marriage course uh, for folks. So a lot of stuff that's free and available on our website for parenting and marriage. And of course, you can find our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Wonderful. Yeah, definitely check out the Messy Family Project and podcast. And uh, we hope to talk to you again real soon. So, Mike and Alicia, thank you for joining us. It was great to be with you, and I hope to be back sometime in the future. Yeah, thanks for having us. And we are back to cover Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, Chapter 5 and 6. Welcome back, Kara. Always good to be here. Good to see you, good Brad. Last time we had talked about chapters three and four, which if you remember, we were talking about the two chapters that cover the subjective elements of love, namely the physical and the emotional elements that initially attract us to the opposite sex. You know, if you remember, we were talking about like, these are not necessarily bad. They are simply the more visceral kind of reactions that we have that initially attract us to a person. But the physical and the emotional elements are ultimately not true love. But we didn't get to find out quite yet what is true love. And that is what chapters five and six are delving into in a more real way. So the way that JP2 frames it is that those first two elements, the physical and emotional, those are subjective love. And on the other hand, you have objective love. And so what is objective love? Well, chapter five starts us off with explaining that true love is willing the good of the other person. And what does that really mean? That means over and above your own desires. Now, that seems a little obvious and trite, but I think it stands in stark contrast to what we see generally in the culture, which is love for as long as it feels good. You see this a lot with no fault divorce. You know, there's this kind of idea of, you know, gosh, do people even say this anymore? Conscious uncoupling or whatever <laughs> atrocity that 
Gwyneth Paltrow pushed upon the world. Oh, was that? Um, yeah, that was Gwyneth Paltrow, I guess. It, it was. Ha- Paltrow. Hasn't caught on yet, but we'll keep a lookout for more conscious uncouplings. <laughs> but I mean, I think that the fact that that people maybe smeared at her terminology, but that's a pretty common framing, I think, that we see nowadays that, well, if we're just not feeling it, that's a perfectly good reason to end a relationship or end a marriage. Yeah, I think maybe part of the reason people sneered at it wasn't so much that they disagreed with the underlying sentiment. They just didn't like that she was saying the quiet part out loud. (laughs) So yeah, I think there's not necessarily a lot to be said more than that. I do think that one of the interesting points that he brings up in this chapter is the idea of First, that you are a gift and that when we are truly willing the other something for the, the good of the other person and they do the same for us and you are going to be building a relationship of mutual goodwill with the other and you're sort of offering that to them as a gift, you're also offering yourself as a free will gift. And I think the most interesting point about this that Sri and, of course, JP2 make is that you cannot give a gift that you don't actually possess. And what he's getting at here is that in order to truly give of yourself, you must have self-mastery. And so that is, you know, over those subjective elements that we talked about before to sort of be rightly subordinating them to true love. And also, you know, our own whims and desires. If you're an unreliable person, you're not a terribly good gift to be giving because you are not going to be able to be there to be responsible for the other person. And so I think it it doesn't delve into it quite so much on like, how do you get there? But it's an important element that if you are desiring true love, you should also be working not on just finding a person worthy of giving your love to, but also on yourself through, you know, building a virtue to become a better full gift. One way that Sri opens up the notion of love is willing the good for the other in contrast to the preceding chapters, which focused on sensuality and sentimentality. Uh, He uses the Italian phrase, ti voglio bene, which I have to throw in, you know, obligatory Italian content. Uh, (laughs) Ti... T, U, Volio, will as involuntary, but with extra letters in there because it's Italian. And then bene, meaning well. T, Volio, bene. I wish you good. Well, it's much better than the Spaniards who literally say, I want you. Oh. Te quiero. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, fine. Yeah, that that is much more along the lines of yeah. what we were on guard against in chapters three and four. I know they also say te amo, which is a different thing. But yeah. That's not what you learn in Spanish class, you say. <laughs> But as we'll learn later on, you is not necessarily what I want when I say te quiero, because if I really wanted, quote unquote, you, then I wouldn't be going about this the way that I feel like I should. So we'll, we'll get into that in a little while. So veiled. <laughs> Much mystery. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's no reason to drop the pretense. It's just that these people don't know what love is. That's okay. That's why, that's why Edward III is here, and that's why we're here. Yeah, so the, the, the point of that phrase and the point of the, the jumping off point in this chapter is to help understand that love is more than just its subjective aspects, just the sensual and sentimental aspects that are so powerful, especially early on, and can lead some people to believe that's all love is. It's weird because for the vast majority of couples, the subjective aspects of love either change or fade completely, and... People are led to believe that because they identified 
those aspects with love itself, that therefore the love is gone, which is not a complete picture. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. It comes back to that idea that I think you hear, even in popular culture, that love is a choice. I I like this framing better than that. I think saying that love is a choice is true, but I think it's not just that you decide that you're going to keep loving somebody even if they're terribly mean to you. It's more defining, like, what does that mean when you're choosing? And I... I think what's interesting is that idea of willing the good. You know, I don't think that Sri gets into it in this chapter, but you know, as Catholics, we know that willing the good means conforming your life to God's plan and to virtue. So I, it's not it's not a subjective idea of what is the good. We actually have a very concrete idea of what is the good and trying to help your partner before you get married or your spouse when you're married achieve that in some ways there's you know there's more freedom i think as a catholic because we know what that means that means to be growing in virtue and that means to be seeking god's will and not our own so this is an interesting thing maybe since i've mentioned virtue one of the questions here is what do you think jp2 meant when he said quote love as experience should be subordinated to love as virtue so much so that without love as virtue there can be no fullness in the experience of love, end quote. I guess that's basically just saying, you know, making the subjective primary rather than the objective. And this is where he kind of sets up that elevation of love. Even if those experiences change, you still have love because love is a virtue for you. You are able to will the good of the other, you know, in good times and in bad, in sickness and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's value in reflecting on that quote and the way JP2 sets up love as experience versus love as virtue, uh, because he characterizes love as experience, the subjective aspect of love, as a psychological situation, and love as virtue, the objective aspect of love, as an interpersonal fact. Mm. And here, I think, is where we get into Te Quiero versus Tivolio Bene. When you're saying Te Quiero, what you're experiencing is a psychological situation. When you're understanding Tivoli Bene, you're engaging in an interpersonal fact. A psychological situation doesn't require another person. The other person mm -hmm. may be an apparatus for getting to that psychological situation, which you may find pleasing. But an interpersonal fact is what you're saying is the case, even if it's not necessarily the case. So an interpersonal fact is this person and I are in love over and above whatever I may be feeling from moment to moment, or even over the course of several years. This love is greater than my psychological situation. If it was just my psychological situation, then I would be saying te quiero, but I would be meaning I will take you or leave you as long as I can keep the situation. You know, if I was in the matrix and I was able to deceive myself into thinking I was in a relationship with the perfect woman, I would still have the psychological situation, but I would not have love because she wouldn't be there. No no offense, uh, good Brad, but I don't think you need to be in the Matrix to uh, pull that off. True that, enough. That is just like, go on the street. And <laughs> True enough, there are matrices in every bar. <laughs> or used to be in the bars, now it's... Uh... It, yeah, in every, in every bar whose gathering restrictions have been lifted. <laughs> Because this is how, quote unquote, love works in our kind of common cultural understanding. I love you for how you make me feel. But the causal factor there is how you make me feel, which is different from you, the other person, my supposed beloved. The interpersonal fact, on the other hand, focuses 
entirely on the other person. And that's what the virtues are for. The virtues are there so that we can be friends with anybody, but also so that we can love our specific beloved. Well, this is actually a good jumping off point, I think, into chapter six, because the other element of objective love that Sri discusses, and you know, obviously JP2 is discussing, is the idea of having responsibility for your beloved. So it's not simply willing their good, but also participating in ensuring their good. And uh, one of the quotes that I had highlighted from the reading was, the greater the feeling of responsibility for the person, the more true love there is. And I think that that's kind of an interesting sentiment. I mean, obviously, that can be a misplaced sentiment. But particularly in the context of marriage, put aside dating for a minute, I think we'll come back to thoughts about how you go from subjective to objective. But throughout the discussion of objective love, Sri is certainly assuming marital love and marital status. Yeah. Because that is the that is certainly the time when you should be achieving a true objective love. It's paradigmatic. It's what we're aiming at in theory. So that yeah. should yeah, that should be the standard. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I think the idea that, you know, in a marriage you are not only, you know, yoked together and giving yourself freely, you are also receiving the gift of the other person. And what that means is that when you receive that gift, you are entrusted with the gift. You see this all the time in sort of women's literature or, you know, these stories where women just swoon over the idea of a man caring for them. But I think that's because that is truly what Christ does for us. He truly accepts us for who we are. We have an open door policy in the confessional to apologize. And we are guaranteed, you know, that sort of absolution when the priest gives it to us. And there's an element of the that desire as the perfect idea of marriage. I mean, my husband and I actually did uh, Ephesians 5 for one of the readings at our wedding, which Ephesians 5 is the classic, the man is the head of the house and like women, you will be subject to your to your husband. But then on the reciprocal, which I think doesn't get as much attention, is that like men are called to take care of their wives as Christ takes care of the church. And it's, you know, I think it's, you know, right there in scripture that we are meant to be taking care of the other. And that doesn't just mean, you know, bringing them flowers and cooking them dinner, although that's nice, always love it. It's, it's actually taking care of the person's soul and feeling a responsibility for, again, that growth and virtue. Yeah, and, and that responsibility for another person doesn't mean endorsing somebody's faults. It means openly acknowledging those faults for what they are. And as a result, you are better understanding the other person. You're not trying to sugarcoat or paper over their faults or mischaracterize them for something they're not. If I were to say, I accept you, my hypothetical wife, and you are perfect just the way you are, I wouldn't actually know her. I wouldn't actually understand her for what she was. And therefore, my ability to love her would be hindered because I'm not actually relating to a person in herself. I'm relating to my fault, flawed understanding of a person. So that responsibility is not endorsing everything the other person does. It doesn't justify abuse. It presupposes, it implies truth in the relationship too. Just like you were saying in the confessional. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, so when I was at Verily, one of my relationship writers was talking about she was newly married and her and her husband had been out at some party. And afterwards, he actually sort of gave her some gentle fraternal correction. 
And she was like, I was so mortified that he, you know, would say something to me. But she's like, you know, the further I reflected on it, the more I was like, wow, he really cares for me because he like cares for my soul that he basically was calling her out for gossiping a little bit. And he's like, you know, that's that's not what Christ wants for you. And that's not what I want for you. And even though it's a fraternal correction, A, he did it gently and out of love, and B, it's oriented towards the virtues. And it wasn't a, hey, you're a mean person. It was, you and I both know you want to be better than this. And C, he did it in private, right? And not in front of other people. Amen. Uh, Prudence wins the day, always. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fraternal correction doesn't need to happen in the moment in front of a crowd of people. Preferably not. Preferably not. Yeah. (laughs) Embarrassing your spouse is not a good strategy. But yeah, that that responsibility for the other, I think, can be misinterpreted in a couple of ways. One is I am paternalistically taking charge of the other person in an asymmetrical way where they are not also taking uh, responsibility for my own well-being. This is meant to be a totally mutual, symmetrical facet of the relationship. So that's one side of this. Taking responsibility for someone is not a parental kind of responsibility. The other way I think this can be misinterpreted is some sort of a negation of freedom, which he also Mm -hmm. talks about in chapter five a little bit, that in our culture, we definitely prize uh, freedom and individuality, and we sort of force our notion of love to conform to that. Whereas here, that's not really how it works. Freedom exists for the sake of love. You wouldn't want to be free if the possibility of love wasn't there. And indeed, you wouldn't be able to love if you weren't free to give yourself to the other person. Consent is what makes a marriage, and that consent has to be given freely. But Mm -hmm. if there was no love, then my freedom would be frustrated because I would just be on a hamster wheel. The freedom is leading somewhere. It's freedom for, not freedom from. Definitely. So I feel like both of these chapters on their face feel fairly straightforward. But to me, I think what was percolating in the back of my mind as I'm reading them is a little bit more of that practical aspect. You mentioned at one point the idea that you're not meant to suffer through an abusive relationship. I think that the other piece of it that maybe hasn't been bridged in the reading, and maybe he does later, you know, we start we sort of start off in chapters three and four with the subjective, which is sort of the like initial attraction. And so we start the relationship at the beginning, and then chapters five and six are sort of talking about the end state. But it doesn't give us a whole lot of insight into the process of going from the first to the last. Right. I know, I think I think as somebody who I, you know, kissed a lot of frogs on my way to finding my husband, I <laughs> I think that navigating the middle waters can be a lot more challenging than I think this book. I mean, this, that's not the point of this book, but I, I just want to acknowledge that this is not like a roadmap for like how to get to that perfect end state. It's more a here's what we're striving for. And if anything, you know, the process of dating is to move you from that initial attraction to a more ideal state of love, but also sort of subordinating all of that to our reason and making sure that you kind of know that this person is worthy of your free gift before you make it. One way to move from prioritizing the subjective aspect of love to prioritizing the objective aspect of love is by working on expectations. Mm. 
the stronger the sentimental and sensual elements are early on, the higher expectations you're going to have for the person in the long run. And those expectations routinely become uh, overinflated. And I think that's even an understatement because what people expect out of their significant other can be just overwhelming. And if you are the significant other, it can be burdensome to have those expectations weighing down on you for ultimate fulfillment. Or even the expectation that the initial high will be maintained. I mean, I think that all the sort of research in the field is that the feelings fade away after about a year and then you're left with, do I have a true friendship with this person? And is this somebody who I want to choose to do life with? You know, hopefully you have figured this out before you're married and are realizing that maybe I made the wrong choice. And obviously there's a lot of grace that comes through the sacrament of marriage, you know, not to discount that there can be a lot of grace there, but making sure that you're subordinating those feelings to reason and to virtue before you make the ultimate commitment to the other person. Yeah. And in that first year when the subjective aspect of love is more present, it's okay to enjoy it. Enjoy it See it for what it is and let it point you towards something beyond that. Don't try and cling to it as some sort of monomaniacal focus because, yeah, it is most likely going to change and going to fade, and that's okay. It doesn't mean the love is gone. What Sri is talking about here and what JP2 is also talking about here is an indication that people who feel love don't necessarily have love or know what it is because feeling love in the most visceral sense of that phrase, is just a step along the way. But there's more to it than that, because your love can increase for a person when your feelings are less intense. And sometimes even because your feelings are less intense. Yeah. I I feel like he sort of mentions this more in passing in the setup to chapter six, that most people don't have a solid friendship with their spouse. And he doesn't get into that friendship element, but... I think that's kind of what you're talking about here is like yeah. you're when the feelings are a little bit more subdued, you can get to really know the person and form a friendship and not just, you know, a romantic friendship, but a true friendship that's based on, you know, something deeper, whether that be, you know, shared faith, interests, and, you know, certainly not, not putting down any sort of like recreational activity. Like my husband and I love going on bike rides in part because then we get to listen to our books on tape. <laughs> While we're writing, but you know, I think I think that there all of these different things are sort of elements of friendship, which are more uh, like a less heightened version of of those early feelings. Right. Yeah. So working on expectations, realizing that this is not where ultimate happiness comes from, that you both are helping each other along the way to your ultimate happiness, which is in God and in God alone. Mm. This notion is really brought out by a quote from C.S. Lewis in one of his letters, kind of similar to the quote that we read a few episodes ago. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving toward the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. 
So that's the quote from C.S. Lewis. I think he probably put it better than I ever could. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned the over expectations. I think similar expectation that should be rerouted is I think on the other side, on that objective side, I think that there can be a temptation to idealize the married state and finding the spouse as if that is going to fix everything. Um, and I've, I've certainly witnessed friends who go from that subjective feeling to offering the objective love via, you know, taking responsibility for the person or trusting them with more than is perhaps appropriate for the given point in their relationship. And I think that worth bearing in mind that that sense of responsibility and that trust is something that is earned over time. It's not like, oh, well, I choose to love this person and therefore it's love. Like, no, love is also like an objective reality. It's not only a choice. It has to be a choice informed by truth. So if you choose to love someone who's a narcissist because you don't know them very well, that's going to be a destructive relationship because they don't care for you back. And so I think that there is an element of, you know, knowing that our primary responsibility is to God and that God made you for him should help us at least guard a little bit against the idea of like, looking for the person and sort of attributing your love to those who are who perhaps are are not the ones who you should be uh, securing that attachment to. Right. I think the most useful way to understand this distinction between the subjective aspect of love being primary and the objective aspect of love being primary is what Sri calls immature love and mature love. So in immature love, when the subjective aspect is primary, it's based on feelings, whether sensual or sentimental. It looks inward at those feelings, and it is not really able to make a gift of self and to be responsible for the other person. In mature love, where the objective aspect of love is primary, uh, it's based on the truth of the other person. It's an interpersonal fact. And my commitment to that person is self-giving love. So it's outward focused. It's not inward focused. The feelings can still be there. They don't have to be. But when they don't have to be, there's not as much pressure on the individual to feel those feelings, which is why it can lead to peace uh, in the relationship. Just to wrap up, one thing we still have to cover that I don't think has been covered in this characterization of objective love is what makes conjugal love distinctive from other types of friendship. Other than being exclusive and primary, this kind of relationship, as Sri has set it up, doesn't really seem to involve any sort of physical dimension necessarily, which we'll get into later in the book. So there's still an open end to this that we will cover, not next episode, but two episodes from now in episode 66, when we will talk about chapters seven and eight. Kara, any uh, any parting shots? No, I'm feeling really good about my marriage. This is really my <laughs> takeaway here. We are like old nerdy people. <laughs> well, tune in next time to see if uh, Kara's gotten any older. Um... <laughs> Definitely we'll be getting nerdier. There's no question about that one. All right, Kara, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. You can subscribe for free to Made for Love wherever you find your podcasts. And the best thing you can do to help the podcast grow is to leave us a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. Bye now, and God love you.